92.3 FM W222CD Louisville and 106.9 WVEZ FM HD2 St. Matthews Louisville, a pure radio station. Hello and welcome to the Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. And we're starting with the book of Revelation, a challenging book, a great book. It's understandable and applicable, but it's a handful. So I want to help you with that. And my goal with the the show is to uh, encourage people to read the Bible, to understand it, to be able to read it more effectively for themselves, but also to provide some help uh, from someone who studied it a lot. The show's name for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. It's a good book for uh, devotional and uh, it's ideally done in uh, groups or at least with partners but really my top target is people that have struggled to read the bible before and uh, or people that have never picked it up before where do you start so uh, that's the project and that connects to the show as well i want to encourage you to read the bible before during and after what we cover here ideally you read the passage and then you hear me talk about it and then go back and read it again So anyway, for the project itself, the book project, more information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. On last week's show, we talked about the church at Laodicea and started to wrap up uh, the section of Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. Today, I have a little bit more wrap-up to do in the first segment, and then we'll move into chapters 4 and 5, which uh, are the amazing worship services that occur in heaven that John has the opportunity to see. So we'll take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Pure Radio, reaching all of Kentuckiana with the pure gospel of Jesus. Welcome back to the Word Diet. We're wrapping up our discussion of Revelation 2 and 3 in this first segment. And we've been in this chunk of scripture for about five weeks. Uh, I did a, a fairly long introduction And then we talked about the seven letters and started into the wrap-up last week. And we have a little bit more work to do there. When we started this part, I gave you a homework assignment. I encouraged you to put a table together with the details of the pattern of the seven letters. The letters have a, a pattern. There are exceptions, but there is a pattern. And so, for example, Christ refers to himself when he communicates with John in a different way each time. And there's a reason for that. He chooses a particular aspect of his character uh, and how he's depicted in the scriptures for that church, for that moment. And so I had encouraged you to keep track of that. And then there was the commendation for each church and the rebuke and the exhortation, right? So if you haven't done the assignment, it's not too late. You can still do it. But uh, I'll give you a smaller table to work on for each of the seven churches. Just list the commendation, the rebuke, and the exhortation. And then the other thing I'd asked you to do was when you have that table in place to consider how you fit into the seven churches. How does your church fit into the seven churches? So, for example, you might say that I am, and this would be my example, I'm 30% Church of Ephesus, 10% Church of Laodicea, and 60% Church at Philadelphia. And what does that mean? Well, the Church at Ephesus, if you go back and look at the commendation and the rebuke and the exhortation, is that they were commended for their works and their patient endurance. They didn't tolerate evil or false doctrine, but they had forgotten their first love. 
And the exhortation was to remember, repent, and return. And if I'm being honest, uh, trying to be honest in my walk, uh, there's a pretty good chunk of Ephesus in me right now. Uh, I'm in a good spot in terms of the things I do, but there's bits of me that uh, I tend to do it for the wrong reasons, right? Or it becomes uh, a ritual, or I've been a Christian for such a long time that it's easy to miss the relationship part of what God wants for us and from us. And Laodicea is the church of the lukewarm. I've got just a little bit of that in there uh, as well. I tend to be complacent at times. And then, but most of it, at least for me, is Church of Philadelphia. A lot of great opportunities in front of me. Um, Do I have the strength, the courage through Christ to walk through those? So for me, it'd be 30% Ephesus, 10% Laodicea, 60% Philadelphia. What is it for you? Of the seven churches, which fits where you're at? Are you struggling with you know, a chunk of Pergamum and its compromise with the world in terms of doctrine? Are you, do you have a little bit of Sardis in you, right? Where there's a, a dead church despite the reputation. So how do you fit into the seven churches? And then I think it's interesting to consider where, where do you think your church fits into this? Uh, you're probably not in a position to judge that very effectively. So your judgments here should be tentative and not dogmatic, but What's your sense of it? And, and if that's your sense of the church, what can be done to help that? What can you do to encourage your leaders? Or if you're a leader of a church, what can you do to encourage your church to deal with its flaws and to pursue its strengths in the Lord? So as we wrap up Revelation 2 and 3, go back and read it again or read it for the first time. Keep track of your observations and then Look in the mirror and see where you think you settle in those seven churches. And what can you do about it? What did Christ say to those churches? And how can you incorporate that into your walk going forward? The last resource I've got for you is from my files. And it's an article or series of articles from Christianity Today, October 25th, 1999. So I'm dating myself a bit here. But going into... Uh, The year 2000, CT asked seven writers to write seven letters to other churches, contemporary churches. And it was a very interesting exercise. I'm going to read excerpts of four of the seven, but I think you can find it online and it's worth a read. Uh, And again, an exercise here possibly, right? You might consider writing yourself a letter. You might consider writing your church a letter, right? Uh, not, Not mailing it necessarily, but... Again, how do you fit into this? What would Christ say to you about himself? What, what would he say that would commend you? How would he exhort you? And what would his prescriptions be for you to move forward? So again, this can be a very useful exercise for you personally. But these seven writers wrote to seven churches uh, at the year 2000 and said some pretty cool things. So let's look at some of the examples. The editors asked Eugene Peterson to write a letter to the Suburban Church of North America. And I'll read just a very few excerpts here. But Peterson writes, What energy, enthusiasm, generosity. But I do have this against you. You're far too impressed with size and power and influence. You are impatient with the small and the slow, and you exercise little discernment between the ways of the world and my ways. I want you to spend the next couple of years reading carefully and repeatedly the 16 Hebrew prophets, Isaiah to Malachi, and I want you to put my people back on the path of simple faith and obedience and worship 
in defiance of all the, that the world admires and rewards. I think there's a lot that's still accurate there to the suburban church 20 years later, right? When Peterson writes this, there's a commendation for energy, enthusiasm, generosity, getting things done. But there is the, the critique that we tend to be uh, too impressed by size, power, influence, and we tend to mix our ways with the world ways. We've got to be careful of that. Uh, the prescription to read the prophets is interesting, uh, and the prophets can stir us from that sort of complacency. And so I appreciate Peterson's prophetic word to the suburban church. The second letter I want to cite is uh, written by Todd Hunter, who was the national director of the Vineyard USA, uh, which was a, a 500 church movement in the uh, Pentecostal and charismatic tradition. And here's what Hunter writes. He says, uh, you are faithfully and passionately embracing the visible, mysterious work of the Spirit. Yet I hold this against you. You pit preaching and ministry of the Spirit against each other as if they're opposed. So preach the word, test the spirits, don't fear thinking, these three produce discernment, which counteracts gullibility and faddishness. Now, I have some experience, uh, very limited in the, in the uh, Pentecostal and charismatic movement, but not nearly enough to say whether uh, this is a particularly apt description. I suspect there's at least uh, a good bit of that still in play today, but I'll leave it to those in that tradition to say if it still speaks. But I do appreciate what he had to say 20 years ago. Again, the commendation not diminishing the mysterious and powerful work of the Spirit, but there can be this tendency to work the Spirit against the Word, right? Not to preach the Word, not to uh, think critically, not to test the Spirits. So I think there's a lot there, uh, or something there at least, for those churches to consider with, consider whether they're there uh, and how to avoid uh, going there or falling back into that. The third letter I want to cite uh, was written by William Willimon, and it's to the church called Mainline. Uh, he has some funny lines in here. He says, the Mainline got sidelined. I'm tired of your propensity to turn wine into water at your bureaucracies in Nashville, Minneapolis, and Louisville. That's a great line. I promise you renewal, not restoration. Many will be grateful for your Mainline open-handedness, the way you manage to make room for such a wide range of faithfulness within your congregations. But I think you tend to be open-minded to a fault. I wish you would hire some theologians with some guts for a change. And Willeman has a lot more to say, but uh, he dropped some pretty good bombs there, right? The main line has gotten sidelined, a lot of compromise, a lot of openness, right? And there's pros and cons to that as well. And the tendency of uh, denominations to become bureaucratic and all the, the fun and trouble that goes with that. So uh, I, I think I can confidently speak that the main line is still struggling with the very things that Willeman talked about 20 years, and we can hope and pray for uh, more faithfulness in that regard going forward. The last of the uh, Christian, Christianity Today letters I want to talk about is written by Susan Wise Bauer, who is uh, really big in the homeschooling movement and a writer of history and literature Got had the privilege of hearing her speak a few times, but she wrote this 20 years ago, and the letter was to the rural church. And she says, like me, you have chosen to be inefficient, 
Remember that 20 years spent in the service of a handful of faithful believers are as priceless to me as 20 years spent calling crowds to repentance. I will be with you in your long, quiet march toward the kingdom and and its coming. But I also have something against you. Like a family, you make judgments that stand forever. And again, I don't have a ton of experience with rural rural churches. Um, my brother has pastored a couple of them. I've certainly heard stories, but I think there's a lot to this, right? There are thousands of pastors in small churches, and we'll never know their names. Uh, their work is tireless. Uh, it's not going to be written about in publications. They're not going to have famous books, but they're doing crucial work in the kingdom. And so they should be applauded for that. But rural, rural churches also have their challenges, right? Particularly because they tend to be smaller uh, and more closed, right? There's some baggage that goes with that. And that's what Bauer's talking about here, right? The tendency towards judgmentalism, the tendency uh, to be too conservative in a way that's not consistent with the ministry of Jesus. So that's where we're going to wrap up our discussion of Revelation 2 and 3. Again, you know, one of the ironies of Revelation is, as we talked about from the beginning, it's meant to reveal and people are afraid of Revelation, but I think you can agree with me that if, if you've read along Revelation 1 through 3, it's pretty easy to understand. It's not that complicated. 4 and 5, where we're going next, is not that complicated either. It's got a lot of pictures and uh, crazy language and hyperbole and stuff we're not used to maybe, but it's pretty easy to understand that as well. Uh, the difficulty begins in chapter 6, but these first five chapters of Revelation, don't let them intimidate you. Uh, Pray, ask God to show you something, and read them on your own. What will God show you, particularly in Revelation 2 and 3, about your own life and the life of your church? All right, so we're going to take a break now. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry in its small piece of God's kingdom. Spread the word about Pure Radio and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Dependable, trustworthy, Pure Radio at 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the first segment, we finished our wrap-up of Revelation 2 and 3. And again, if you haven't read those letters and tried to apply them to your life, I really want to encourage you to do that this week. We now move along to Revelation 4 and 5 and the worship that takes place in those. I've got my notes titled Worship Services, but really the first thing to say here is that, by way of introduction, is that worship is both an event and a lifestyle. Here, John is getting a picture of worship as an event through uh, what looks to be a vision. And so for us, same thing, right? Worship is an event, something we do at a point in time, but it's also a lifestyle, like prayer. Prayer is an event. Prayer is a lifestyle. Prayer should be uh, just like breathing in and out. In that sense, it's a lifestyle, but prayer is also something you do in a set-aside time, and worship is the same thing. So I want to make sure to make the point that, yeah, worship is something you do, for example, on a Sunday morning with a bunch of people around you. That's fine, but worship is really something that is lifelong and moment to moment. So a little bit of discussion about where this fits within Revelation. So one thing to say is that chapters 4 and 5 are bookends to chapters 21 and 22 at the end of the book. And so both passages are about worship in heaven, 
different, but both are focused on heaven, both are focused on worship. And in Scripture, when something is bookended, it usually is emphasizing the things in the middle. And so uh, the key events in chapters 11 through 13 will get our attention many weeks in the future. But for now, know that 4 and 5 and its focus on worship is an introduction to things that are coming later. And it's later going to be bracketed by chapters 21 and 22 at the end, which will come back to the same theme. So why does it fit where it does? Well, two things to say here. It follows chapter 2 and 3's epistles. And one interpretation of that would be to say, whatever your problems and opportunities, right? We saw a bunch of those with the seven churches. Whatever, wherever you're at, the response should be worship, right? After the seven letters where we end up with worship. The churches had a lot of problems, right? They had government persecution and cultural seduction. They were being attacked from within and from without. They were dealing with the power of the dragon and the guile of the serpent. And the call to depend on God is the same, right? That we should depend on God in dealing with persecution and we should resist cultural seductions uh, by depending on God as well. And both of these are recurring themes. And what's the answer to both of them? Again, worship. We see government persecution and cultural seduction uh, from Egypt early on in the Bible, right? With Joseph and then Pharaoh. And then later it's Babylon and Rome. And in both cases, the call is the same, that we're to come out of both. We're to avoid idolatry toward the government. We're to avoid uh, bowing to their persecution. And we're supposed to avoid immorality as well. And we'll see this pop up again in Revelation 17 and 18, where John, or Christ through John, will call his people to leave Babylon. Christianity, the claims of Christ, stand in direct opposition to the idolatrous claims of both government and culture. The second thing in terms of place is that Revelation 4 and 5 not only follows chapters 2 and 3, of course it precedes chapter 6. When we get to chapter 6 and following, there's going to be a huge emphasis on justice and judgment. And by placing it here, again we're being told, it's being communicated to us, that before we're going to get to that, got to worship. Worship precedes justice and judgment as well. So whether we're dealing with our daily lives along the lines of chapters 2 and 3, or we're looking forward to uh, heaven and final judgment in chapters 6 and beyond, the focus should be worship. And worship implies good theology, that we understand God's character, his characteristics, how he's worked in history, what his promises are as we interpret where we've been and where we're going. We're going to tear into this passage verse by verse, phrase by phrase, but before we do that, let me read the entire chapter to you. Uh, If you're not driving, maybe close your eyes and listen. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, 
Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Can you picture any of that? Can you picture all of that? As you're reading Revelation, we've made the point that it's a drama, right? That there's something being depicted here that looks like a drama. So make sure to hear the sounds and, and smell it and see it and try to imagine what it's like as you go through this. There's a lot of art and poetry and beauty and um, just a powerful description of something, right? What is it? Uh, what's going on here? What's being depicted? So try to picture it before we dig into the details. So let's go back to verse 1. In the NIV, the first and last phrase of verse 1 is, after this. It literally means, after these things. So the fact that it be, is at the beginning and the end of the verse, the fact that it happens twice, means it's a point of emphasis. So what's going on here? At the least, it signals the next part of the vision or revelation. Verse 1 also talks about the verse, the voice I had heard first. Uh, again, that phrase gives chronology or space in terms of the visions. Now, one of the questions this begs is how much time has passed since chapter 3? It might have been five minutes. It might have been five months. Right, so we don't know uh, that part of, of it. Uh, we're not going to know that. And at the end of the day, I'm not sure it matters a lot, but it is interesting to consider that some time has passed. Commentators do different things with this, as you might imagine. So it may allude to a completely different chronological part of history. Right, so if we take an earlier date of Revelation, maybe uh, we're into the fulfillment of the judgment against Jerusalem in 70 A.D., or there's also a, a very popular view that this is speaking of the end times, and uh, we might have debates about the rapture and some other, uh, other things, but that's for a different day. Remember back to chapter 1, verse 19, we had something similar there. It says, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And there were three verb tenses there, what you have seen, past, what is now, current, what will take place later. And so uh, those who see most of this happening in the future and at the very end of time uh, take that last phrase about the future, what will soon take place in verse 19, what will take place later, they think that's what's happening here, right? That the break in time at chapter 4, verse 1, the after this, is pointing to the, the future at the very end of time. Uh, we're not going to solve that debate uh, certainly today. Uh, but I do want to just make the point in passing that there is debate over that phrase. The other interesting thing is, is, is that the church is not explicitly mentioned after this. One can certainly read it in, 
most notably uh, in the second half of chapter 7. But that's led to speculation on, you know, is the church gone? We're back to the idea of rapture there. Maybe the church has been pulled out uh, if, if this is something in the future. Or it could just be that the focus of Revelation is mostly on the, those being judged outside the church, at least this part of Revelation in the middle. And so you wouldn't necessarily talk about the church very much. So again, there's debate on that. We're not going to solve that debate uh, today or even play with it very much. But those are some of the things that are in play as we uh, try to understand what that phrase means. Now, verse 1 has some stuff that's easier to understand, so let's get to that. First of all, there's an open door in heaven. It's interesting, Mark 1.10, the Spirit descends. And we're not told about a door, per se, but uh, the Spirit descending from the heavens is uh, similar. Uh, John 1.51, Christ says, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. At the ascension, right, that's uh, fulfilled in uh, Acts 1, 9 through 11, as Christ uh, ascends uh, as well. And then we've got verses like John 10, 9, where Christ calls himself the gate or the door that seem relevant here. Or you might think back to Genesis 28, 12, where uh, Jacob... Become a P3 partner. P3 partners are pure radio listeners who pray for pure radio each day provide financial support to our programmers, promote Pure Radio by telling others about us and sharing us on Facebook. Ready to get started? Go to pureradio.org and click on the P3 Partners button and register. P3 Partners have privileges. Get books, DVDs, CDs, devotional materials, invitation-only access to Pure Radio events, and other experience opportunities only available to P3 Partners. Pray, provide, and promote Pure Radio. Become a P3 partner today. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're just starting into our discussion of Revelation 4, and we are almost done with verse 1, but there's one more phrase that uh, needs quite a bit of time. It's the command to come up here. This command will be repeated to the two witnesses in chapter 11, verse 12. Uh, maybe reminiscent of the command that Moses receives in Exodus 19 to go up the mountain. I think the first thing is to consider how was John to get up there? Seems kind of weird. Come up here. Uh, how am I going to do that, Lord? Not really sure. Uh, he's willing and available. Uh, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 12, all he had to do then was turn around to engage in conversation. But here he's being told to go up there. But given that he's willing and available, we'll see in verse 2 that at once I was in the Spirit, and then he's taken there. Uh, it reminded me of 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. It says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's what's going to happen to John here. This is not something he's making up. Scripture is not something that's made up. This is something given to him by, by God, uh, by Christ, and it's through the Spirit. So this also probably indicates it's a vision. It's possible he's physically taken to heaven, but probably easiest to read it like a vision. In any case, J. Vernon McGee says, The bridge over the great gulf is passed with ease and a reverent restraint. Only the Holy Spirit could describe things in heaven with as much ease as he describes things on the earth. And that's what's about to happen in chapter 4. John is called up here. He's about to see wild things. 
and put them on paper to un- for us to understand as best we can. I think the next question relates to something we were talking about earlier is why was John to go up there? And why then? Why worship now? So one is that it's a postscript to Revelation 2 and 3. That is John and his audience then, and I think the readers now, you've read Revelation 2 and 3, why focus on worship? Well, especially in the face of persecution, but also compromise. Uh, Worship is the right response, as we talked about earlier. It's also a transition from the relatively local of Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the seven specific local churches, to the universal of Revelation 4 and following. So the book makes a turn here, right, to uh, go from, you know, eminently local with its applications to something much bigger than that. I think you can also see this as a prelude to Revelation 6 and following. And some commentators have called this seeing the control center in heaven before being shown the impending activity and destruction on earth. Matthew Henry says, whatever is transacted on earth is first designed and settled in heaven. So for John to get a look behind the curtain, a look at the control center, so to speak, uh, is very helpful before we get around to actually seeing the action unfold on stage. I think the same thing is true for us. We need to see God and understand his character before we understand his actions. Uh, and that's true whether we're talking about Revelation 6 and following or whether we're talking about life. Scotty Smith says, Before the apostles given a vision of the unfolding of history, his eyes and heart must be captured by a sight of the Lord of history. This knowledge is central and critical to everything that follows in Revelation and in life. If we don't understand who God is, his sovereignty, he's in control, he cares, he's going to judge, etc., then it doesn't really make sense, or the inferences we're going to draw are not going to be helpful. C.S. Lewis said we're all theologians, right? The question is really, are you a good theologian or a bad theologian? We all have ideas of God, but are they accurate or not? Revelation 4 and 5 is hoping to center that theology in the most accurate way. Finally, I'll allude again to the what's called the futurist view, seeing this, uh, the rest of Revelation is largely in the future. And if that's the view you take or end up taking, uh, that's fine. But how does that fit here? Well, whatever you figure out about the future and however much energy you put into that, what should it be preceded by? Well, worship, chapters four and five. So if that ends up being your take on Revelation, it's much more important to know him who knows the future than to know the future. And one of the temptations of the futurist approach is to focus on dates and calendars, trying to figure out what's going to happen. And whatever your energy is there, make sure that you're focused as the scriptures are on Revelation 4 and 5 to understand the one who controls the future rather than obsessing on the details of what that future might look like. All right, verses 2 and 3 says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had an appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald, encircled the throne. So, assuming this is a vision, it's the second of four visions in Revelation. We had one in chapter 1, verse 10. We'll have another in chapter 17, and another in chapter 21. 
Verse 2 talks about God the Father sitting on the throne. And of course, this is a common Old Testament depiction of God that's being referenced here. It's huge in the book of Revelation. 41 times the NIV translates the word uh, throne, 15 times in chapters 4 and 5. In fact, throne appears in every chapter of Revelation except 2, 8, and 9. And it is the beginning and the focus of this vision. To the extent that things this can be separated, we would say that Revelation 1 through 3 was opening with a vision of Christ. The heavily prophetic and apocalyptic part of the letter opens with a vision of God the Father here in Revelation 4. It's a someone, right? It's a something more like a person, not a force, but it's also not fully recognizable or identifiable. So God is, def- is described more so as a person, but also a person that can't be described or identified or recognized. He's not a mere force. It's a, there's a throne there, but it's not just a throne. It's an occupied throne. Scotty Smith says, without this vision of the occupied throne, many come to the symbols and images in Revelation, like the Antichrist, the Great Tribulation, beasts, dragons, Babylon 666, famines and wars, and end up feeding their fears rather than their faith. Right, whatever you get out of Revelation, it's not meant to feed fears, it's meant to feed your faith. It's meant to give you hope, it's meant to reveal. And that starts with understanding the throne is occupied. It is not empty. It's occupied and that implies that God is seated there. And that's an interesting picture as well, right? God is seated, he's at rest, he's not freaking out, he's in control. So God is seated on his throne and the throne is occupied. Let's go to the description of God in verse 3. J. Vernon McGee calls it colorful, I'm sorry, color, beautiful color. That's all we get here. It's the appearance of something in verse 3, right? So again, John is not committing to a literal description here at all. And then we're given two gemstones, Jasper and Carnelian. Jasper is uh, in the New Jerusalem and the first uh, foundation, Revelation 21.11 and 21.19. Exodus 28.20 tells us it's the last stone in the breastplate. Uh, We're not exactly sure what this is. Uh, Apparently it was clear. What we call jasper today is opaque. So it's probably best to think of this as a diamond-like substance. Matthew Henry uh, asserts that it offers to the eye a variety of the most vivid colors. And if it's clear, it would be symbolic of purity. The second stone is carnelian, or also translated ruby, sardius, or sardian. Sardius and sardian sardian take us back to the church of Sardis, and there was a blood-red stone that was common to them. Uh, Revelation 21.20 tells us it's the sixth foundation, and both of these are listed. Both stones are listed in Ezekiel 28.13, if you want another Old Testament reference. The, the blood-red color would be symbolic of fire, justice, and wrath. Let's think also about how God is not described. He's not described using any human features. So we're avoiding a violation of the second commandment, right? This is not describing God in finite uh, human terms. Instead, he's portrayed as staggering light, the reflective brilliance of precious stones. So I'm reminded here of Psalm 104.2. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. Acts 22.11, Paul was blinded by the brilliance of the light of Christ. 1 Timothy 6.16 says God lives in unapproachable light. 
There's a lot of Ezekiel 1 in this chapter as well that is uh, informing what uh, John is writing about here. Let me give you one reference. Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28 says, Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. That's a precious stone. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell down, and I heard the voice of one speaking." So a lot of parallels that John is experiencing here to what Ezekiel wrote about in chapter 1. The other thing you might have caught in Ezekiel 1, the passage I just read, was that rainbow reference again, right? So back to chapter 4, verse 3 of Revelation, his throne is encircled by an emerald-like rainbow. Emeralds are green. William Barclay says the green is more restful than the other two colors and stones. For in that way alone could the eye bear to look upon the light. So he's basically saying the emerald is easier on the eyes, easier to look at. For Barclay, the jasper symbolizes the purity of God, the carnelian, his wrath and justice, and the emerald, his mercy, quote, by which alone we can meet his purity and his justice. So Barclay sees the combo of purity, justice, and mercy uh, in God's character as it's depicted here Uh, with the color and the rainbow. Of course, a rainbow uh, quickly brings us back to Noah and the promises God gave there of God's mercy and protection and his covenantal faithfulness. So again, a reference to mercy there. And it's encircled. So we're not quite sure what this means. Probably that it's overhead and he's able to see a full circle. It's funny, you know, the rainbows we can see are only half. So we get half a view of a rainbow Uh, But here we get the full circle. And as we continue through Revelation 4, we'll see many other circles uh, around this throne. The last thing to note is, again, what's missing. There's no description of the throne itself. Who cares, right? It's not about the throne. It's about God. So we focus on God. And frankly, John probably couldn't see anything else. He probably saw the outline of a throne in this vision. But uh, as amazing and uh, the, the, the staggering picture we have of God here, the throne is uh, and a bit of an afterthought, at least in terms of the visuals. Verse 4 gives us the 24 elders, 10 references to them in the book of Revelation. They're seated on their own thrones, and they're surrounding God's throne. They're dressed in white, which represents their purity. And where does that come from? Well, Christ's blood. They have gold crowns on their head. Uh, in verse 10, if you remember, they're about to cast them before the throne of God. The Greek word for throne or for crown here is stephanos, which is the crown of reward, as opposed to the crown of royalty, which is diadema. But the reward crown, given other passages, implies power and authority in heaven, which uh, if you're not familiar with that, that's a topic for a different day. But these are the crowns of reward uh, that the elders are wearing. Most often, the 24 are taken to represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. If so, it's kind of funny because that would include John, the writer himself. So you can kind of picture him looking up there and seeing himself among the 24 if they're close enough to make out the faces. Uh, The 24 are also part of the gates and foundations of the New Jerusalem in chapter 21. And broadly, we consider this as symbolic of all of the faithful people of God, both Old Testament and New Testament, Jew and Gentile.
We're going to take a break and we'll pick it up with verse five when we come back. Stay tuned. Tune to us for the Pure Gospel on the radio. Pure Radio at 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. All right, welcome back to the Word Diet. We're in Revelation 4, verse 5. And with that verse, we go back to God on his throne for some more description. The verse begins with lightning, thunder, and rumblings. The word is almost always translated by the NIV elsewhere as voices. So maybe it's a voices rumbling, and it's coming from the throne. Again, very much like Ezekiel 1, that's a good chapter to read combined with Revelation 4. The lightning and thunder is symbolic of power. So uh, it's the same uh, thing used in Exodus 19. And in Revelation, the combination is often used with an important event. So the seventh seal, trumpet, and bowl all have uh, are all accompanied by lightning and thunder in chapters 8, 11, and 16. Verse 5 also has the seven lamps blazing before the throne, the seven spirits of God. So another reference to the Holy Spirit. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 4. We'll see it again in chapter 5, verse 6. Verse 6 of chapter 4 has a really cool reference. It looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Again, this is also in front of the throne. The first thing that's difficult here is, is it glass or does it is it just something that's as smooth as glass? Whatever one's interpretation, this clearly alludes to the basin in the temple. It's mentioned six times in Revelation 11 through 16. It was labeled the sea in Solomon's temple, a huge body of water. And we'll see along the way in Revelation, it'll be joined by other artifacts of the temple, the lamps, the altar, the altar of incense, and the ark are all mentioned in Revelation. All 16 of Revelation's references to the temple and its furnishings are to items within its inner courts, and that's where God dwelled. So what do we make of it here? Well, if, if it's not a sea or it's something that's been smoothed over that was a sea, some commentators take this to mean that there is no more sea. And therefore, there's no more need for cleansing. That's what the sea would have done in the time of Solomon's temple. Uh, Hendrickson argues kind of the opposite, that this is picturing Jesus and his cleansing blood here. And so uh, he pictures this as a memorial to cleaning that has already taken place. So either way, about the same thing, right? Either the cleaning is no longer needed, and so the sea has been smoothed over like glass, or it's a memorial to... Uh, the cleansing that Jesus has done for us. Beyond all that, just the imagery here is beautiful, right? The, the purity, clarity, transparency of it. Uh, the, this picture is something that's consistency and unchanging. It's a picture of peace and calm. It looks like a mirror. There may be something interesting there. At the minimum, I think we can say in terms of symbolism, it it has immense beauty and value. You know, in that day, to get clear glass, smooth glass, would have been crazy. We just take that for granted today, but for them, uh, they can't even imagine glass that would have looked like this. Or how is glass made? Well, we make glass through sand. So you take something worthless like sand and turn it into something priceless like glass of this sort, and it underlines the grace and the redemption of God and how he moves. The other thing we can say for contemporaries is that they had an immense fear of the sea. We're not real fond of it either, right? But for them, 
it was a really big deal. Even back to Genesis, the waters were portrayed as chaos in the very beginning. And then you think about water references in the uh, throughout the Bible, the Red Sea, the creatures of the deep, Christ calming the waves. So th- their take on the sea was a lot stronger than ours. And so to see the sea smoothed over like glass would have been just really powerful for them. Responsible, credible, pure radio, 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. So verse 6 continues uh, into the early parts of verse 8 with the four living creatures and the praise that they offer God. Uh, The description is reminiscent of a combination of Ezekiel 1, the cherubim there, and the seraphim of Isaiah 6. Again, Ezekiel 1 is, uh, I think, a must-read chapter for uh, to supplement what we're doing in Revelation 4. Uh, the four living creatures are immediately around the throne, as if they're lifting it in honor or guarding it. We see the cherubim in Genesis 3.24, guarding the entrance to the garden. We see the, that God is enthroned between the cherubim. We're given that picture uh, with the temple and the ark. Uh, as well. It's discussed in Psalms, uh, depicted elsewhere, that God's presence, so to speak, is in the ark or represented there, and he's enthroned between the cherubim who, as they are, are honoring God with their presence or uh, guarding it, so to speak. Uh, End of verse 6 has that they were covered with eyes, front, back, and verse 8 says, under their six wings, All the eyes indicate nothing escapes their sight, as is the case with God, and their wings indicate their readiness to fly to do God's will. So wisdom and obedience, something we should seek to emulate. Verse 7 identifies them as like, and that's a a word used 72 times in Revelation, underlining the difficulty John has in describing what he's seeing and experiencing, like a lion, a calf, or an ox, having a face like a man, and an eagle. The commentators have done a lot with this. Uh, some, some point to this as pictures or outworkings of God's character. The lion is majestic and fierce. The ox is faithful and strong. Man is intelligent and sovereign. An eagle is powerful and swift, and that all of these should give and cause him to be praised. Others point to Christ's work in ministry. The lion is his royal power the oxen to uh, the priest and sacrifice role, man to his incarnation, and the eagle to the Holy Spirit. And they see parallels in the four Gospels. Matthew, the lion, the lion of Judah and the king. You've got Mark as the ox, the servant of God. Luke as man, with the emphasis on his incarnation. And then John as the eagle, the divine son of God as deity. If you want to go more figurative, you've got the number four, which is used Uh, in the Bible and elsewhere to depict creation and nature. So Revelation 7, 1 has the four winds, right, that cover the earth. Revelation 20 and 8 describes the four corners of the earth. doesn't mean that the earth is a a rectangle, but uh, figuratively, right, it's a reference to the four compass points, the directions as well. It's also the dominant members of the four categories of created beings. We've got the wild, which would be the lion, you've got domesticated, the oxen, human, and then the birds that are all mentioned here. And all these happen to be mentioned in Genesis 2.20 as well. If we go this direction, that we're talking about nature with the number four, then we've got nature and the church worshiping God. 
And that's a theme that's reiterated through Scripture. Psalm 148 is great on that. Romans 120, Paul talks about nature testifying. Romans 8, 19 through 22 talks about creation being redeemed. And so we have uh, nature and humans both worshiping God here, along with the angelic beings. I think the last intriguing possibility is that the four creatures are representing ministers. They're nearer to God. They're between the elders and God. They're fewer in number, so it points to their leadership piece. And this would be leadership in its ideal. The eyes would characterize their wisdom and vigilance. And then the animals would represent their courage, the lion, hard work, the ox, prudence, man. And for the eagle, strength, soaring, and what Matthew Henry calls delivering sublime affections, right? There's just something beautiful about what the eagle does. Last thing is a little bit of math for you. You've got four ministers and you've got six wings. Four times six is 24. And so those ministers with their wings are covering the 24 elders, which could be a picture of the church. The last part of verse eight turns to their endless praise chant or praise chorus. We move from what John sees in verses 2 through 8 to what he hears in verses 8 through 11. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is the first of five hymns in Revelation 4 and 5. And commentators have noted how the New Testament then begins and ends with outbursts of song. You've got the four songs of Luke 1 and 2, and here in Revelation, you've got a bunch of songs as well. As Eugene Peterson puts, uh, puts it, the story of our faith, our very existence, begins and ends with joy. Think about what is written in Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, then down to verse 4, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. And then down to verse 7, while the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. So our relationship with God, our theology, starts with joy and praise and worship. So verses 9 through 11, let's look at the praise of the 24 elders, what goes into it. Verse 9 in the NIV starts with whenever. Okay, when is that? Well, verse 8 said, day and night. They never stop. So it's continual. It's eternal. J. Vernon McGee uh, makes has a little fun with this. He says, why do you want to go to heaven? Is the idea to avoid hell? That's not an unworthy motive. But if you find a worship boring down here, why in the world do you want to go to heaven? Right? Worship is going to be a constant key feature of heaven. And so if you don't want to worship, if you don't like that, uh, if you don't like God's people, then you're probably not a Christian, right? Because Christians are going to want to do those things for eternity. So it's a good check on what we're up to, uh, up to uh, what we're going to be about. And if we find it difficult to do those things now, it's a, a, a good reason for us to check our hearts and minds and, and make sure we're where we think we are. Verse 9 is the adoration to give glory, honor, and thanks to him. The object of adoration also in verse 9, him who sits on the throne and lives forever and ever. Verse 10 gives the acts of adoration. The words of adoration will follow in verse 11, but there are acts of adoration as well. Verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him. So here we have humility, submission, and worship. And then they lay their crowns before the throne. Of course, this picture is complete submission or surrender. 
would have this is what would have happened in ancient times if you were conquered. Barclay says here the picture looks on God as the conqueror of the souls of men and on the church as the body of people who have surrendered to him. Or sometimes you would lay your crown before the crown the, the throne as tribute. And that's fitting here as well, recognizing that everything we have comes from God and all glory should go to God. There are a number of passages that talk about us receiving crowns for various things, and maybe it's meant as uh, a figure of reference, but maybe we do get a literal crown uh, and crowns for, for various things, as the New Testament describes. I like what J. Vernon McGee says about this. He says, many people talk of there being a crown for them to wear. Frankly, if we get a literal crown at all, I think that after we wear it for a while and the newness wears off, we're going to feel embarrassed. What in the world are we doing wearing a crown? The only one worthy up there is is the Lord Jesus. So I don't know if we get literal crowns or not, but if we do, we know where they're going. They're going where they deserve to be, which is at the foot of our Savior, the foot of our great and glorious God. And that's what the elders are doing here. They're laying those crowns before the throne. Verse 11 gives us the words of affirmation, the chant or chorus, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Again, think of emperor worship, right, where Domitian, for example, was claiming that he should be able to receive that. And uh, John and Christ are talking some smack here that, no, there's only one who is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. And then finally, at the verse, at the end of verse 11, we have the grounds for adoration because he created all things and by his will, they were created and had their being. God is creator and preserver. And so we lift that up as worship. So if you think about the doxologies and praises of this chapter, verse 8 was focused on who he is. Verse 11 is focused on what he had and has done. And that should be the object of our praise as well. God's character and God's work in history and his promises. The same is true of us. We join all creation. We, jo- we join all angelic beings in praising our great and glorious God. Lord, we pray that today's chapter has caused us to see you better, more clearly, and for us to redirect and refocus our praise and invigorate our praise for who you are. Lord, pray that we would have clear eyes to see because of what we've read and seen and heard in Revelation 4. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's been great to be with you today. Uh, Please uh, check out the podcast on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Interact with me on Facebook with your questions and comments, and we'll see you next week.